Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. I hope you're all doing well in your corona lockdown, staying safe and hopefully staying healthy. So today for episode 164, if you're interested to learn more about Erle and Bitcoin Transaction Relay, this is the episode for you. My guest is Gleb Nemenko from Chaincode Labs. This show is brought to you by Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. If you haven't signed up yet, why haven't you? Go and check it out, kraken.com. They've got a high quality platform. They offer high liquidity and high trading volume with low fees. They also offer 24 seven support. So it's really fast and easy to sign up with them. They're consistently rated the best from a security standpoint and also from a user standpoint. Kraken also have Kraken Pro mobile app. Kraken Pro delivers all the security and features you love about the Kraken Exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design. Kraken also offer OTC services for those of you who want private personalized service for large block trades of 100,000 USD or more. Kraken also offer margin up to five times, and if you're outside the US, there's also Kraken futures up to 50 times leverage. Go and sign up at kraken.com or find the Kraken Pro mobile app on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Next up is Unchained Capital Bitcoin Financial Services, and you can secure your keys using their Vault product. If you're bullish on Bitcoin and you expect the Bitcoin price to rise, you want to make sure you've got your security locked down. Unchained make it easy for you with multi-signature vaults. You can use two of three setup and distribute your keys. You can use Trezor and Ledger and you can secure your Bitcoin for the long term with that option. Also, friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin. Unchained has a collateralized loan product where you can put up Bitcoin and get USD liquidity. All Bitcoin stored on-chain and it's never rehypothecated and you can store one of the three keys in that model. I'm really impressed with Unchained. Go and check them out. They've got an awesome blog, Gradually Then Suddenly, Hodl Waves, and they've also got a bunch of open source contributions such as Hermit and Caravan, an open source multi-sig coordinator. Go and learn more at unchained-capital.com. Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com will help you stack Bitcoin automatically. You want to do it without manual processing. If you're in the US, you must look it up. You can link any major US bank account via ACH and auto buy weekly or monthly. The Bitcoin is delivered to your wallet or stored with a licensed and regulated custodian. I had a recent episode with Corey. A lot of people really enjoyed that episode and understood that Swan Bitcoin's focus is about education and Bitcoin advocacy. They specifically want people to hold their own keys. I'm involved as an advisor with a small equity stake also. So there's givebitcoin.io if you want to gift Bitcoin to people and then go to swanbitcoin.com for your automated Bitcoin stacking. Here's the interview with Gleb. Gleb, welcome to the show, mate. Hey, nice to be here. So Gleb, uh, let's hear a bit about your story. I know you're working at Chaincode Labs, you're working on Erlay and a range of other things as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into Bitcoin development. So I never had a real job. My first job I got on my third year undergrad, started working on Bitcoin exchanges and wallets, stuff like that in Ukraine for two years and then I moved on to the masters in Canada and that's where my supervisor was like oh you're interested in Bitcoin by just looking at my CV and like oh do you want to do something related to that and that's how we started and that's early eventually became my master's project. What was it that got you interested into this whole area this whole topic of transaction relay? My supervisor was invited to this conference called scale in Bitcoin in 2017 in Stanford, but she didn't want to go and she suggested me to go. I was very happy. It's like a free trip. I'll see all the Bitcoin <laughs> developers. Yeah, I was I was a hungry student and yeah, going from Canada to Stanford was quite cool. That was my first time visiting the States. 
So yeah, I agreed. And when I came, it was like, I had no idea about Bitcoin core development of, or the industry. I thought, so there was this SegWit uh, BCH discussion. I thought SegWit 2X is like SegWit, but better. So I thought, why people don't <laughs> like 2X? I don't understand that. And I, I was saying, like, <laughs> I remember talking to Suhas about this at Stanford. But yeah, apart from that, I was sort of inspired. Like it was, it looked so cool. Uh, before going there, I was afraid that uh, Bitcoin core development is like very toxic. Every, nobody allows new ideas. Nobody welcomes new contributors. But after going there, I was much happier and I wanted to become a contributor too. So when I came back, I started just searching for problems and looking at the software and the protocols, how it works. And it looked like a lot of people looked at attacks on mining or optimizing mining. Uh, people worked on wallet. Segwit was obviously a big topic of development at that time, but transaction stuff was like the way peer-to-peer -peer layer was not very well developed at that time. I guess Matt, Matt Corrala did a lot. He did compact blocks, which relays blocks in the network much faster. And that's super important, but particularly into transactions, it was the, something nobody really looked much. So I decided to start there and f find, find a problem, then try to come up with a solution. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. It's that you're, you were looking for other areas, like what, where's the blue ocean instead of the thing that everybody else is already looking at. So how did you go about learning more about transaction relay within Bitcoin and how did you come across that problem? Uh, I mean, honestly, for me, it feels like the most interesting part of the code, the way nodes talk to each other, because it's at the same time, it's it's very high level in a way that I can explain it to whoever, to my brother, to my mom. I can draw on paper arrows between nodes. And at the same time, even though it's very high level, it's like, it's like right here and finding attacks on it is so cool. Like, okay, so what about a bad person does this and that, and now the transaction is censored and just cannot be propagated in the network because somebody sent their own messages. So it's not like 51% attack where somebody censors a transaction by having a lot of hash rate. It just uh, finding a vulnerability in the network protocol and, and exploiting it. And that felt very cool. So for me, learning it was was easy because I just, I just, I just like drawing how, yeah, how things happen on paper and understand that at very high level, then you look at the code and confirm your observations, maybe write some tests. Yeah. So that was a very natural fit to me in a way. Can you give us just a high level background? How do Bitcoin nodes work now from a transaction lifecycle perspective? Can you just talk us through the basic steps there? Oh yeah. So imagine you're the best uh, Bitcoin user, so you have uh, your hardware wallet and you have a node which you run at home because you're a responsible user. So you sign a transaction on your hardware wallet and you send it from your hardware wallet to the Bitcoin node running at home. Your node will validate it, so it will look at the current blockchain it knows about, uh, check that you're spending the coins that exist, the signature is correct. And then it will send, it will announce the transaction by hash to all the peers it is connected to. Your, your home node usually connected to at least 10 peers, eight of which used for transaction relay. So it will announce a hash to eight peers. Just send 
the hash of a transaction to them. Those guys will look in their local database and since they don't find the transaction there, they will ask you for the full transaction. This is made for efficiency so that so that we don't send transaction body at once and don't waste a lot of bandwidth. That was the first optimization done to this feature, I don't know, more than five years ago, I think. So they will ask for a transaction by hash and then you will send a full transaction. And at that point, the same happens on their side. They validate, check all the rules, they announce to their peers, and that's how transaction gets to miners and eventually appears in a block. Awesome. And so the Bitcoin network depends on connectivity between the nodes. And so what does that mean? Like, why is that important for the Bitcoin network? Yeah. So as I said, when you start a node at home, you connect to 10 peers. One could think, why not connect to one? The answer is, if one node is bad, if they want to lie to you, they would be able to do this if your connection is exclusive. So for example, they can double spend you. They can feed you the invalid blockchain, the fake Bitcoin blockchain where they pretend to pay you. Let's say you accept payments and sell something. So they pretend they paid you while on the real chain, which is much more difficult to construct and where real miners are, they didn't. So that's, that's effectively a double spend and they take your good and then they go away without paying you. So to prevent that, we connect to more than one and the number eight was chosen randomly, I think when Satoshi wrote the code. I guess walking that through that example. So let's say I was malicious and you only connected to me and I said, oh, hey, Gleb, I'll, you know, pay me some, uh, what would it be? So basically it would be, I pay you some Bitcoin and you send me a good, right? Like you're, you're selling me a book, you know, or whatever. And so... In that example, I would basically send the transaction to you, well, I'll make send you a block that looks like I've paid you, uh, but in reality, you, because you don't have enough connections to the outside world and you're only connected through me, then that's where the malicious aspect could come in and where I would receive, you know, that whatever the physical good was from you or the service from you uh, and get it for free because I could then unbeknownst to you but to the outside world actually spend that away back to myself or just have never spent it to you on the real chain yeah is that roughly what would happen there so obviously constructing blocks is expensive it takes a lot of hash rate so you would have to uh so this is called an eclipse attack where you eclipse the victim's view of the network by your malicious fake view so you start feeding the fake blockchain to the to the victim so uh in order to make this practical you ideally you uh, an attacker eclipses the victim from the very beginning because if they do from the very beginning they can make the blockchain so that producing blocks is cheap Rem imagine just uh reversing back in time where blocks were created on satoshi's computer on a i don't even know cpu or graphics card whatever what was used at that time and just feeding victim just that, like pretending that's entire blockchain or creating a lot of cheap blocks on top of it without without any ASICs uh, or with, with one ASIC. So that, that will make it an attack much easier. And then, yeah, they feed you a block with transaction included in it. Uh, so this is just one problem. There are other problems with this called Eclipse attack. Uh, they can trivially censor transactions. So if you send transaction to the attacker, try to submit your transaction. They can just drop it on the floor 
So it never confirmed the real network. So they can prevent you from transacting. Obviously, you can detect that quite fast, but uh, there are some interesting attacks we will announce soon. We found on Lightning where in the Lightning network, sometimes it's, it's critical to submit a transaction timely because there are these time locks and uh, punishment period. So if you're late, you're screwed and the attacker can steal your funds. So if they can censor you for an hour, that, that can be already pretty bad. Uh, that's that's the second example of an attack. Uh, a third thing I might think of when somebody is eclipsed, it's very trivial to spy because if a victim is connected to you exclusively, you see all the messages coming from them. And if you can look also, also the other nodes in the network, you can notice that some transactions are... Uh, yeah, so it might have cut out for a second there. But um, you were saying that if you were only connected to one person and then they were able to see all the messages that you were sending, then... Uh, yeah, so by, by looking at the messages coming from a victim and by looking at the other public nodes in the network, they can notice that some transactions are coming from, from, from the victim first. So that would be the victim's transactions, obviously. This is called first spy estimator technique. And, and that becomes very trivial when there is one connection to the attacker. So it's very easy to map a transaction. So address from address A to address B, X amount of Bitcoin, to map this information to the IP address of the node the transaction is coming from, the victim's node. So an attacker in this case can tell that, oh, this guy in New York at this address just just submitted a transaction saying invited to Iran or something or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And how about now if we change that example just slightly, what if the user is attempting to use something like a VPN or they are using Tor, the onion router, to try and mask their traffic, how does it change in that example where you're still only connected to one node? All right, so it's really different trade-offs. So, for example, in the case of VPN, you're, or in the case of Tor, you're really only protected from uh, your internet provider, so your home ISP. They, they cannot spy on you, but all these attacks I was talking about, that's, those are my favorite attacks because they are purely... Bitcoin protocol layer. So they, they work, it's not, it's not part of the internet infrastructure. It's just part of the peer-to-peer in, in layer. So you can think that internet infrastructure is underlying, but peer-to-peer layer is sort of on top. And we're attacking peer-to-peer layer. So this things doesn't, doesn't really help against those. They help against infrastructure attacks, against your government spies on you. So if you are in some Asian country and you're using American VPN, uh, unless they cooperate together, Asian con- uh, government cannot spy, spy on you if you configure everything securely. So so these are really different things. Yeah. Yeah. just wanted to clarify that and uh, make it clear that these are in some ways different uh, things. And so it's different things to d- mitigate against other, uh, yeah, different components that might mitigate against different attacks, let's say. And so uh, I guess the underlying lesson or message there is that even if you are using some of these anonymization or pseudonymous techniques like using a VPN or using Tor, it's still important that you are connected to multiple different nodes such that you aren't 
only doxing or only giving a transaction through one specific node because then they can start to infer things uh, from you about who you are or what you're transacting on the Bitcoin network, right? Uh, yes. So there is another interesting trade-off. This is like, nobody really talks about this, but connecting to too many nodes is also bad <laughs> because you don't want everybody in the network to hear from you either. So we should find this sweet spot. Like I would say from eight to, I don't know, maybe 30 nodes is something reasonable because like, just to be clear, there are 10,000 reachable nodes in the network. So 10,000 nodes which run publicly and can access be accessible from any part of the world, you can connect to them. So out of that 10,000, we choose like at least eight. And I think I think that's, that's a reasonable bound because if you connect to everybody, all of them, uh, and everybody connects to all of them, you become success, susceptible to, to, to other things. <laughs> right. And as I understand, that's also one of the... So there's that concept of the spy node that tries to aggressively connect to every possible node and then using that to try to identify where on the network a transaction originated from based on the timings and where it first saw it. And then that was the thing that Dandelion was... The idea of Dandelion was born to try and counter against that. Now, as I understand, Dandelion has some other trade-offs that hasn't quite... um, made it into Bitcoin Core yet. Could you just spell out a little bit around that and the thinking on that? Uh, Yeah, so we were talking about Eclipse attacks before where somebody owns your blockchain view or your connection effectively to the network. Uh, This is some other research area, which is basically, we can call it transaction origin inference attack. So to find out where transaction is coming from, what's the first node? to have some transaction, because then you can de-anonymize people. Um, so yes, you're, you're exactly right. The most obvious and the most easy approach is to connect to everybody, uh, for an attacker to connect to everybody and try to observe messages and try to infer the, like, the timing analysis, see where at what time the transaction, the messages are coming from first. Uh, that's the most widely used and discussed approach. So. Dandelion was this research idea first, and then it was actually proposed as a PR uh, per Dandelion. Instead of relaying a transaction to everybody, as I explained, which is called uh, flooding, because you send to everybody you know. You have eight connections you send to all of them. In Dandelion, first, uh, you send to just one random node out of eight, and that random node sends to one node again, so that there is this, on average, 10 hops, uh, they call it spe- stem phase, like like in a dandelion, like in a flower. 10 hops stem. And after the, those 10 hops, at the 10th node, it starts to flood. That's why for the spy, using the same technique, it will probably look like that 10th node is the source of the transaction, which is obviously wrong. So that's how, at the high level, it is it is supposed to work. Uh, the problem with Dandelion is that uh, there is this trade-off. So far, the problem is we can either make it less effective so that an attacker can find an easy way to, uh, to, 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 to hijack it, to prevent it from working, to de-anonymize stuff Dandelion is used for, or it will, it will require too many uh, resources a node will consume. 
So I know it will have to, to spend much more extra uh, RAM, memory, and maybe bandwidth too. So because Dandelion is not like, it's not even a perfect solution. It's only an attempt. It's called like a heuristic, an attempt to make something more private without really uh, good proven guarantees. This, this trade-off was never in favor of Dandelion. So we're still open to try to make it possible, but so far we spent like Bitcoin core developers spend a bit of time trying to make it happen. And this, this trade-off becomes more and more clear and challenging so that we are now looking at probably other solutions to this problem. And so bringing it back then to Erlay and Transaction Relay just in general. So the Bitcoin network has this INV message flooding and that could be explained as being high fault tolerance, but poor bandwidth efficiency. So what is fault tolerance? Uh, so INV, it's just, it stands for inventory or inventory inv. So this is this hash announcement I explained. You see a transaction, you first announce it by hash to your peers. It is it is a high fault tolerant because you, you announce it to all peers you know. So it's like the best efforts. You don't trust a single peer with early in your transaction. You send to everybody. So that, that's why it's high fault tolerant. At the same time, because everybody receives it, probably not like, um, and they do the same. Uh, everybody receives it eight times, if you think, because uh, the, you have eight peers and you send to them. And imagine the first peer sends to some far peer in South America and South American peer sends to the second peer you already sent to. So that, so that guy at that point receives it second time, like the same hash, which is not necessary. And that's why it is high fault tolerant, but it spends a lot of bandwidth. Everybody receives everything eight times. Yeah. And so it just becomes a very costly uh, from a network perspective, would that be fair to say, as the network grows, right? Uh, so there are two aspects to this. First, every node spends a bit like the, the most conservative full node, which release transactions, spends 30 gig of bandwidth a month, which is, I guess, all right for Western countries, but if you're on mobile internet or if you're in developing markets or elsewhere, it, it can be problematic. So out of those 30 gigabytes, half of them is just this hash announcements, 90% of which is uh, duplicate. So I, I got a hash for this transaction and I will get it from my other peer too for the second time. So all those duplicates, uh, constitute effectively almost half of the bandwidth and node spans. Ideally, we could get rid of them. I see. And then, so I guess this is where Erlay comes in. What are some of the, you know, what can you just give us a high level? What is Erlay and what are some of the benefits of it? Yeah, so Erlay is a way to relay transactions without sending those hashes to everybody. Instead of this, you get a transaction, you will forward it to only subset of your peers, not to eight or not to all of them, because you also have inbound peers. Maybe if you're running a reachable node, you have eight outbound, eight to 10, depends on which patch you're running, and you have inbound peers. So you will send only to outbound, and with inbound, you will not send it to them by hash, but you will do very efficient 
mathematic encoding thing to exchange your transactions with them so that it's it's much more efficient. You're not announcing everything by hash right away. You're constructing this, uh, we call it sketch of all you have and, and send it to them. And they will try to look at that sketch and try to see what exactly their, their local view is missing and request only what's needed. So that's, that's effectively how early it works. And two main achievements is that you remember that 30 gig of bandwidth a month, with early it will be only 18 instead of 30. This first achievement, the second one is uh, before early, since you're relaying your announcements through all connections you have, it poorly scales with the original protocol, poorly scales with connectivity. So if you want to increase connections from eight to 16, you will spend twice as much bandwidth and meaning that instead of uh, 30 gig of bandwidth a month, you will spend 45 because it used to be 15 for ENFs and 15 for everything else. Now it's 30 for ENFs and 15 for everything else, 45 in total. With early, the cost, if you increase connections from 8 to 16, will remain all, almost the same. So instead of 18, you will spend 19 gig a month, which is super cool. And we we want to increase connectivity, as, as we explained in the beginning, connectivity gives you high fault tolerance, meaning more security. You rely less on the on the those eight connections you have, because if you have 16, now maybe 15 can be bad, but six, if 16 is good, you're fine. Gotcha. And then in terms of the costs, as I understand, it will slow down the propagation speed of a transaction. So can you just outline a little bit around what that cost would be? Yeah. So once you send your transaction from your mobile wallet to your local node, it will take right now almost a bit less than four seconds to send it to every node in the network. So in four seconds, every node will know about your transaction, assuming it is valid. And yeah. And so how would that change in the early model? Yeah. So four seconds is primarily, it's not because internet is slow. If because of the internet, the, the speed is just like less than a second, but we add some artificial delay uh, to make it, to make, uh, to add more randomness to the process of relaying so that the observations the spy is making is, 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 is worse. There is some noise. So let's say you're not got a transaction and instead of relaying it right away, you will wait some random time within two seconds before you relaying it forward. So that, that's where four seconds is coming from. It's not, it's not just internet. It's also our Bitcoin layer on purpose delay for protection, for privacy protection. And with early, it will take, instead of four seconds, it will take almost six, according to the experiments I made uh, and according, yeah, to different measurements I took. And what it really means in a broader context, we, we believe this is totally fine because usually uh, what, what matters for a payment receiver or whoever will be looking for a transaction is to they, they will probably want at least one confirmation in the in the blockchain and one block takes 10 minutes so that two seconds difference in the context of 10 minutes is 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 not a big deal we believe that's why that's why we accepted this this latency increase it's possible to make early uh four seconds or even less 
but it's probably won't be as as efficient. It will cost a little more bandwidth. So we we took this trade off. Yeah, I see. And just for clarity for listeners, it's I guess it's when you've broadcast the transaction, but it is not yet confirmed. It's you know it's sitting there in the mempool and so on. What you're talking about here, Gleb, is saying that that transaction you wouldn't you might not see it in your mempool for the six seconds. Uh, that's that's how to understand it, right? Yes, totally. So can you just tell us a little bit about some of the new messages and how, what's needed to make this work, right? So in the past, it was INV and then GetTX. Uh, and now you, you're, you're introducing a few more messages into uh, the protocol. And that's how this reconciliation protocol works, right? Yes. So reconciliation is the this process of efficient comparing sets. It's really just two different sets of numbers. And we think instead of just numbers, we use this we use transaction hash, transaction IDs, which stand for it's transaction hash but shortened. We made it short because that's first that's an easy way to save a bit bandwidth right away, just because transaction hashes are too are too long for no real reason in this case. They they can be shorter because the attack surface is not that is not that it's still difficult to to fake them. And second, the this reconciliation processes efficient set comparison is is just is is very intensive math, so it better operates over small numbers. Um, so let's let's first give a I think it's more interesting give a try to explain what happens under the hood. Let's say you have ten transactions and I have ten transactions, and uh, Nine of them are same, but you have one new transaction and I have one new transaction and they're different. So let's say the ID of your new transaction is 11 and ID of my new transaction is 12. What's the, uh, how many numbers like that, like let's say of the order of 100, we should send to help each other to find the missing transactions and the uh, the the obvious approach to this is you send me all your numbers, so all your IDs, like one, two, three, four, up to eleven. I look at them, I remove what's what's what I already know, and I send you back the one you're missing. But the the cost of that would be what transmitting twelve messages, right? So you send me all yours, well eleven or something, and I send you one back with this efficient reconciliation math, which is based on, ironically, uh, something called BCH codes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's the library mini sketch we wrote with Peter and Greg to to so, to to make this math work. With this with this math, we can exchange this missing transactions, send in just two numbers, and that's that's super like you almost theoretically not possible to do better than. They just send you two numbers. It's almost imagine you you got lucky. So I I found out randomly out of my ten transactions which one you're missing and send it to you and you send to me what you found you're lucky to 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 find. And but there is math we found which makes this possible without guessing, with almost one hundred percent chance of success. So all the protocol messages, uh, all the new protocol messages introduced are basically to facilitate exchanging of those of those. So we use sketches for that. So you take your list of transactions, 
or transaction IDs, and you compute a sketch of them. So you compute a shortened representation of them, like very compressed. And just basically sending those sketches back and forth is, is what I introduced. There are, I think, five new messages in the PGP layer, so it's, it's quite, quite a lot. We had probably 20 before, and after this there will be 25, but, but I think it's, it, it's not a big deal because, because it's like just, it's not really limited. <laughs> Yep, yep. And in terms of changes to the Bitcoin, you know, to Bitcoin core, this would not be considered a consensus change, right? So it's not that it needs like some big soft fork and so on, right? It's 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 something that can be uh, implemented without like that level of uh, kind of community adoption or whatever. Can you tell us a little bit about that process though, uh, in terms of what stage the proposal is at and so on, and other feedback and so on? Yeah. Yes. It it's sort of doesn't need any hard forks or soft forks. I, I'm running it right now with my nodes. So I have 10, nine like front, like avant-garde nodes, which talk to external world, but support early, but don't do early with external world. And I have one node, which purely talks just early to those 10. So, and I'm just looking at how efficient in terms of bandwidth is, is that one. And I'm just confirming all the measurements I had before with that. So it, it works today. It will get better. It scales better with the adoption. So the more reachable nodes run it, the better it is for everyone, more efficient. But you will see improvements if at least one of your peers are running early. It's already going to be better than, than before. Yeah. In terms of the process... I mean, I think I did my best to, to make it happen. I gave a lot of talks on it. Uh, I wrote a lot of analysis. I published code a month ago. We got some initial attention, but right now there is some slowdown, maybe because of coronavirus, maybe because my code is based on some changes which are not yet adopted. So Suhas uh, suggested to use, it's, it's very technical thing, suggested to use um, WTX ID, so witness transaction IDs, which include witness uh, thing where you compute the transaction ID, which should have happened right after SegWit, but nobody really bothered. So my, my changes right now are based on those. Just when you're announcing a transaction, you're not announcing by plain ID, but announce the ID, which includes the, the witness. And, and yeah, I hope that once that is merged, which seems to be very soon. Like I hope it gets merged in, in April. Then after that, I I hope there will be more attention to the to the code review, or I'll just start nudging people and yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, from a recent Socratic seminar, I think there was a pull request by Suhas in relation to the witness TXID. Uh, would you mind just explaining a little bit around um, so? You know, most of us in the Bitcoin world, we're used to searching a TX ID, a transaction ID. Could you just spell out uh, what the differences are between, say, the transaction ID and the witness transaction ID, and then what you're talking about for early, which is a short transaction ID? Oh, yeah. Witness transaction ID is not, is not really very different. It's just, so transaction ID is always a hash. You, you take all the content of your transaction, like, source, destination, amount, well, it's very simplistic terms, but yeah. And you hash them. And hash is really a compression. So you take some data and you make a much smaller data out of it. 
and that's small enough to use it as an identifier. The one you can read, you can compare. And we used to, in in the, mm, I'm not even sure what uh, blockchain explorers are currently using. They're probably using WTX IDs for 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 post segbit transactions because those are not malleable or yeah, uh, yeah there there are I guess I guess they're using WTX IDs. And but this is specifically a PR related to peer-to-peer -peer, how nodes talk to each other. People don't care about that. You you can only see it if you look at your logs. So uh, yes, so that's that's the difference between the two. And in early, we just take well in the because we decided to base it on Suhas's PR we, to compute a short ID. We just take the WTX ID and cut it in, 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 oh, well, actually not. It's not that simple. Um, we, yeah, we, we make it a little shorter and then we use some salting technique. Salt is where you add something to the initial data to, to make hash different for every connection. So that if somebody can grind two transactions, two different transactions, which map to the same short ID, they cannot attack the system. This is called the collision. When somebody can map, can find data which commits to the same hash. So to prevent that, the common technique is salt to add some static data to the initial one so that an attacker, it's very difficult to grind them uh, for every connection because every connection will have different short ID. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's again, it's, it's very technical. Early just, just makes this little thing. Again, the goal was to, to cut some bandwidth basically for, for free because it's easy just to make transaction identifiers use smaller and to, to allow efficient math to work faster. Cool. Cool. And so the hope then is that, uh, once that, uh, WTX ID, uh, PR is merged into Bitcoin core, then you're hoping for some additional review and getting early merged into Bitcoin core and then it would just be in future version of Bitcoin Core. Could you just also spell out how it would work between the nodes that don't support Erlay yet? Would it just be some kind of version signaling and saying, oh no, I can't speak Erlay, you need to speak the old language with me? Well, yeah. Uh, Erlay node will simply, the first thing it will send, it will see that it will try to establish an Erlay reconciliation uh, protocol like it will just send i want to talk to you in early and if the node doesn't respond then the new node will fall back to the existing protocol that's how we do similar thing that's how we will do wtx82 it's like the new node will ask the counterparty can you talk wtx ID for relay and if they never respond it will use the old ones and the same we do for compact blocks it's a very efficient protocol to relay blocks across the network. It's, it's the same thing. It's how we negotiate features. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, yeah, so listeners, if you haven't already, I recommend checking out the episode uh, Matt Corallo on the Chain Code podcast where he spoke about uh, that uh, in a bit more detail around how compact blocks and fiber and so on, some of these things work. Um, so that's good info there. Um, so look, I guess um, that's kind of the early stuff. Let's talk a bit more broadly around Bitcoin. Uh, do you have any other 
things that you see that you know you would like to see improvement on in terms of Bitcoin Core code base, uh, or are there are there any other things that you're thinking about in terms of like security or performance? Yes, there are several topics I've been trying to push forward slowly for a bit, but I think it just takes like there should be a leader with, with these features. It's often like there should be yeah somebody who just talks about this over and over again. And I'm yet to, I want to get done with early and then just start with a new big feature. In the, in the meantime, I'm just focusing on small things. I, I have a PR to, to make address relay better. So IP address, every node, every, every, every day, every node will announce their own IP address to the network so that we know about each other so that if the connection is dropped, we can connect to somebody else so that that's a little broken right now because of we relate to addresses to the nodes which will never relay forward namely spv clients because spv clients are limited they won't obviously relay they don't care about your address ip address but we'll still send to them and because of that it's all it, it's a bit broken because it's 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 really slower than expected uh across the network i'm looking at uh, how to make like network privacy a bit better, how to protect privacy leak in terms of when a new node starts, how to talk last to the uh, DNS server, which helps you to find out about the new nodes. But every time you start a new node, fresh node, you first learn your peers from the DNS seed. And I recently submit suggested they change how to talk to them less. So, so that that part of internet infrastructure doesn't learn about new nodes that easily. Uh, the topics I'm gonna be looking at probably maybe with uh, denial of service protection. So right now there are ways to just uh, exhaust all the resources of a victim node. If you're running on uh, if you're running like on a reachable IP address. Uh, I can probably just make your node much working much more slowly remotely or just like exhaust your CPU or RAM. So I'm, I'm going to start looking into, into that at a, and suggest some fundamental change to, to, to make it better. There are, there are good, there are good protections right now, but, uh, some of them are just, are, are just not, not, not really effective and there should be a a big solution to that. Uh, so basically, to, to protect nodes from 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 being exhausted by by malicious actors. Right, and I've heard historically, and maybe this is still true, that uh, it's possible to craft these like malicious blocks and so on that will uh, basically chew up the resources of the node that receives it. Yeah, yeah. That there was a really great discussion a month or two ago on on different Socratic seminars and. There was a suggestion from uh, Bitcoin guys from Purse.io. It's in implementation of Bitcoin is JavaScript. They really went through this problem with uh, constructing fake blocks, and yeah, so there are, there is developments on that side, but there is like there is like a real fundamental way how to solve the the issue with denial of services. I want to I want to try to to make it happen and see how difficult it is.
And looking more now at the application level of you know Bitcoin applications, things like wallets and so on, are there any things that you see there that you know what's what's your sense there? Are there things that what's most needed? Oh, I'm just I'm just getting excited. I I opened my first PR to Rust Lightning just an hour ago. Uh, it's it's work in progress, but I'm like I just started writing tests to understand the code base. I'm probably like so at 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 Chaincode Labs so since summer it was me and uh, Antoine Riard Riard and we tried to combine my knowledge of Bitcoin peer to peer and his knowledge of Lightning stuff together and we found. Uh, mostly him, him, he finds some attack and I'm, I'm trying to, to, uh, to look deep into it, to look how much does it cost to actually execute it, to think about like how to deviate, how to protect from it. He also takes part in that too. So I'm just now slowly migrating to lightning, it seems to lightning protocol development, to lightning infrastructure stuff. We'll see how that works out at the end, but, but that's, that's, it seems like that's where I'm moving. I hope the issues with Bitcoin will be over soon. I really hope in, in two years, I will resolve all my to-do list about Bitcoin vulnerabilities on the P2P layer. They're not that big, but they're still like privacy leaks here and there, small things, especially with the address relay, with the IP, because you can track how those messages propagated in the network and then see who is connected to who, I, 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 I think. and. Yeah, and I hope I'll be able to slowly move to Lightning, to like protocol and infrastructure stuff, uh, to some ideas on top of Bitcoin. So there are like, for example, cool stuff I'm interested in is how to, so mm, let's say I have a messenger, but I don't want to verify everybody by SIM card. And I want to protect from bots. I don't want people to use to abuse my my messenger. So instead, I can I can use I can ask people to prove that they had Bitcoin sometimes before 2017, let's say, but in a private way. So not not just commit to a particular UTXO and say this is my UTXO. I can prove it to you because that's not private. That's not good, and people won't use it. <coughs> but if we can if we can find a way to make this private with some zero knowledge proofs. I think this is super cool. And uh, Messenger is just really an, it's, it's, it's a broader topic of civil defense. So how to prevent somebody from having multiple identities, identities and abusing it. And that can be useful in, in, in various ways. You can build a, a separate peer-to-peer network for Bitcoin where you can allow people only who can prove some ownership. You can solve some issues with coin joints where it's very cheap to Sybil attack coin join. It's very cheap to uh, pretend that you're an honest participant of a coin join while you're a spy and just overwhelm all the coin joints with spy addresses so that you can infer all the honest people who try to get anonymized. So that's, yeah, that's stuff I'm, I'm interested in and I hope I'll, I'll have to learn some cryptography. I've been putting that aside for a while. And yeah, I'm excited about that too. With the applications, like applications, applications, it's it's like, I think we're in very early days. I'm glad that some businesses are exploring all this stuff. What really makes sense to me is, I think video games and lighting is super cool. I think they 
parts where you can like do shooter where you shoot somebody and then you collect satoshi from them because you shoot them i think that's gonna <laughs> be a big deal i don't know like like light night uh, yeah I, I would i would be so happy to play that if i was like i don't know 15 or something and it's like yeah it's so trivial and it, it can be not decentralized or whatever it's just much more fun like i don't know even just simple gambling like poker or whatever just over lightning i think i think it's that's a super cool niche so i'm looking forward to those to those um another application layer is definitely exchanges without kyc so like hodl hodl or bisque in the states because like I'm, i'm in new york right now and they have hard times buying bitcoin i don't want irs or whatever to like i don't i don't want to have any evidence that i touched bitcoin at all and right yeah and there is like not no good way to really to really purchase bitcoins without kyc right now and i hope there will be creative solutions like using some gift cards like uh, like this prepaid debit cards i think yeah that's that's something i'm looking forward Yeah, so as I understand, there are, I guess there's different things here. There's things like purse and so on that I think you can do something like that where you, you put up gift cards and people can pay Bitcoin to, you know, use the gift cards and things like that. And then BISC and HODL HODL and things like that where obviously you can do cash trades and so on. Um, obviously, you still have to meet someone in person. That person has to, you know, obviously <laughs> see you and that can be a bit more challenging uh and then also they offer some of those platforms offer as well like bank transfer means but even then the challenge is dealing with you know scamming people and so on and again there are countermeasures against these things but again nothing's perfect i guess well, the worst thing for me, like if you talk about bank transfers i'm just you don't know who's on the other side what if it's some terrorist and you're sending your like transfer to them And now your bank account is banned forever. They actually freeze your existing funds. Like no matter how much you send, they freeze entire account. Best case, worst case, they put you in jail because you transacted with some terrorists. So, so that's really what what worries me most in these things. Right. Yeah. And I guess it's it's just not an easy problem to solve. But I guess people can do things like say have. A bank account open that is only for you know bitcoin trades and uh, use that only to kind of segregate away from their the rest of their financial transactions with their normal bank maybe that's one way uh although imperfect obviously yeah assuming assuming first they don't put you in jail and second <laughs> yeah the taxation agency cannot access your bank transactions because that's that's also like not not that difficult to to trace it's probably easier to trace than than bitcoin and uh yeah just by looking at who sent whom and i don't know yeah of course of course i mean you basically have to assume that uh those uh, any federal government agency or taxation agency who asks for it will get it basically so uh, that you just have to basically assume that um but it's not an easy it's not an easy thing So what about um, when you were talking about uh, the CoinJoin stuff and uh, proving that you own uh, Bitcoins and so on, is that also, is there any relevance there with, uh, you know, join markets, poddle proof of, uh, I think it's proof of discrete log 
equivalence. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was. Yeah, just, that's uh, that's what you're referring to. Not, not, not quite. I think Poodle works well. First of all, it's much more practical. It doesn't require fancy cryptography. It's a super neat trick. Like it's really cool, but it's nothing. It's like uh, for the stuff I'm talking about, you really need uh, like zero zero knowledge proofs. Uh, that's 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 so. <laughs> it's funny. I remember this this was my impression from learning Poodle. Unfortunately, I don't remember the details of proposal to compare like the actual properties. I can only compare, I can only recall my, my conclusion. Uh, I think, I think, I think Poodle really works only in a, uh, Poodle really works only in a very specific coin join like thing. Right. Yeah. And as I, as I understand, um, some of the lightning devs are also looking at that as well for things like dual funded channel opening and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super cool. Yeah. I hope I'm really hoping to find ways to participate in lightning more and more because it seems to get more stable so that it's possible to contribute and yet a lot of unexplored stuff and yeah, just good time to be there too. So from a lightning perspective, what are some of your favorite uh, applications or lightning wallets? I, I, I presume you're using, you've, you've tried out a bunch of the lightning wallets. Uh, so actually I'm, I'm just starting with lightning. It's sort of, it was similar with Bitcoin. I think I started to work on Bitcoin before I got excited about the, the money and the censorship resistance part. I started because it looks like cool research problems, like just just something interesting to contribute to good community and a lot to learn about in terms of technology and new ideas you can apply. It's the same with Lightning. I'm learning protocol first and then I will converge to wallets and stuff. I'm, I, I got my first Lightning coins uh, a month ago or no, I think it's more like four months. So uh, do you know this Keybase messenger and they had a yeah, yeah. stellar airdrop and they, and they just converted that to Lightning immediately when I got it. That was my first Lightning. And there was, I don't remember the name of the service, but it's somebody in New York that built it. And yeah, I used it. I used like the, I used Wallet of Satoshi on Android, on iPhone. I think it's custodial, but but yeah, whatever. It looked, I just wanted my free AirDrop Lightning. So so yeah, so I'm stuck to that right right now. As I said, I will learn more protocol first and then I'll switch to better tools, I guess. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you're mostly looking at Rust Lightning right now, yeah? Uh, that's that's my ap application. Well, it's interesting. When we're, I was mentioning attacks we found with Anton, so to to research those, to see how easy it to, is to, 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 to use those, we're actually looking at like LND and Neutrino Client and Async uh, Scala thing. Uh, just because those are the most popular right now. So if we want to justify some attack and some countermeasures, we, we want to look at those. So I'm quite familiar with those code bases too, but as a contributor, I'm started looking at Rust Lightning. Yeah, I I just, I learned a bit of Rust last month and yeah, just trying to apply my knowledge and learn more on, on Rust Lightning now. And so previously, have you mostly been doing like Python and C++? Uh, yeah, exactly. Because I was more like researching. So do experiments in, C in Python, just try to simulate the network because our network is 60,000 nodes and you, you cannot have a real like copy of that. 
So you make a like much simpler Python representation of them, and they talk to each other, and then you measure stuff and just statistics to. And then once I need to make a change to Bitcoin Core, I do C plus plus. Yeah, but I I did everything. I did like I didn't do like crazy functional languages. I didn't do Haskell, but I was I was programming since I was like twelve, I think. So so it's been more than ten years now, and I did a lot of. Not not so good, but enough code to get familiar with languages. Yeah. All right. Well, look. I guess um, if you got any uh, callouts that you want uh, listeners to consider, or if there's anyone, if there's any particular review or support that you want to shout out for, maybe now's the time. Yeah. Okay. I just I just wanted to tell our listeners that right now it's it's really good time to start looking into Bitcoin closer from whatever aspect of it makes you curious. But on my example, I just started contributing so randomly and it was very smooth. I'm not a perfect programmer. I never was at Google. And I don't know, I think it's so good time to start looking at it on, even if you have a full-time job on weekends, even if you don't code, I think you can you can contribute. Amiti wrote recently a really good article on how to start contributing to Bitcoin Core. There are all these other projects. You can you can learn code right away. I'm sure like if you have some kind of technical education, that's doable. Even if you're not having technical education, you can do it. I, I, I have friends who started contributing, at least looking into open source and reviewing code without any prior knowledge. And yeah, I hope I hope more people are joining us in building this cool things. Uh, so Gleb, if listeners want to follow you online or find, you know, see what you're saying, where can they follow you? Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, tomato dread. And yeah, I guess that's it. I, I'm, my DMs are open. I'm always open for uh, research collaborations, ideas how to make Bitcoin core or other projects better. I'm open to, yeah, all sorts of working together. Like I'm, I'm super positive about different experiences. And just I'm, and I want to help everybody to to get up to speed to to join and to to contribute. Well, thanks for joining me, Gleb. Thank you. It was great. Get the show notes and the transcript at stefanlevera.com/slash one six four. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the citadels.